we'll go ahead and uh, start up and people will start joining. I uh, want to thank you all again for joining us for our ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus by Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, we are slowly finishing chapter two and moving on to chapter three, which is going to be, I think, uh, more exciting uh, for myself because we're starting to get out of the deeply, deeply clinical, heavily Potter-infused sections that I don't understand. Um, but as a nice sort of transition, uh, when we get through today's talk, um, it's it's a bit slower. Uh, I think we're going to be able to take a little bit more time and talk through things. And uh, we're going to be talking about art today, which I think is a fun, fun uh, diversion. A uh, little bit of housekeeping, as always, when we start. Uh, as we move into Chapter 3, we're going to be making some adjustments around the server. So you'll start noticing some roles going away, some rooms going away, different things happening, new areas popping up, uh, new ways we're running stuff, because uh kind of just learned uh, some things that don't work, uh, for sure, some things that very much do work, and ways we want to go ahead and set this whole thing up. So... Uh, as we get going, uh, if you have any questions, again, don't hit up, don't don't hesitate to hit up mods, admins. Uh, we're always looking for help. Uh, we're always looking for anyone who wants to sort of just help keep tone on the server nice, uh, help us set things up uh, in a lot of different ways. So uh, hit us up. We will absolutely take any and all fallen. Uh, but with that, uh, admins and mods, how are you guys doing today? Don't everyone jump forward at once. I mean, I would hate that. That would be terrible. Um, everyone's, it's a Monday. It's, I mean, is it Monday? It's a, these days blur together too much. That's that's Jack's role. You, you just took the word out of Jack's mouth from every literature class. So what do you guys think? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Don't all jump in at once. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough when, uh, when you have to get one of these one of these groups going. Uh, but, uh, I guess we will just go ahead and uh, dive on in today, though. Uh, today we are reading Chapter 2, Section 9, The Process, uh, as we close out Chapter 2. I'll begin reading, and uh, once we finish, if you have questions or comments, toss them in the discussion chat live. That's where all of us are chatting. At us, star good things. Uh, just add a little star emoji onto things you think are excellent. Uh and uh, anyone is free to talk. Uh, we are very much an open reading group. But first, let me read the paragraph. Between neurosis and psychosis, there is no difference in nature, species, or group. Neuroses can no more be explained Oedipally than can psychosis. It is rather the contrary. Neurosis explains Oedipus. Then how do we conceive of the relationship between psychosis and neurosis? Everything changes depending on whether we call psychosis the process itself or, on the contrary, an interruption of the process and what type of interruption. Schizophrenia, as a process, is desiring production, but it is this production as it functions at the end, as the limit of social production determined by the conditions of capitalism. It is our very own malady, modern man's sickness. The end of history has no other meaning. In it, the two meanings of process meet, as the movement of social production that goes to the very extremes of its deterritorialization, and as the movement of metaphysical production that carries desire along with it and reproduces it in a new earth. The desert grows, the sign is near. The schizo carries along the decoded flows, makes them traverse the desert of the body without organs, where he installs his desiring machines 
and produces a perpetual outflow of acting forces. He has crossed over the limit, skiz, which maintained the production of desire always at the margins of social production, tangential, and always repelled. Um, I Go ahead, please. I mean, here they talk about, I think the key thing is, that, you know, they start with the word process. So just to go back to chapter one, right? Uh, I mean, without any impetus, uh, worked back on by a body without organs. Uh, desiring production is understood as a process first and foremost, right? Uh, they give a good example of this with the table. Um, so the, t- the schizophrenic table that's constantly being uh, produced and it never reaches the product identity of a table. It's in the process of becoming tables, never actually a table. Because, you know, you need a body without organs to imply the disjunction in order for the product identity of the table to be given, right? So it's, it's the process of continuing grafting on production onto production itself, which is, which is how they understand a process. It's, you know, they describe the table as never being a complete table. It's never an identity of the table. It's just some, it's just this grotesque thing. I, I can't describe it as well as they do. I think I'll try to have to get that quote back. But it, that's exactly what they mean by process, right? That idea that it's uh, it's, it's this constant uh, becoming in that sense that that has the production, the process of production, always grafted on. And I mean, so that's like the schizophrenic process for them for a certain degree. That's uh, Judge Schreiber's scroll. Now, the ending of a process is, is is what they denote like paranoia, right? That's the autistic rag produced in a mental institution, something like that. That's uh, that's the that's the end of the process. So, I mean, also here we get for the first time we get the infamous reference of the new Earth, which is what they're going to reference uh, throughout the book. Uh, I mean, ontological incompleteness is all Zizek's thing, so I don't think we need to go there yet. But that's, uh, I mean, I don't think so, because that ontological incompleteness is already very Lacanian, so we can't go there. But um, the thing is, we, we... thing is they already mentioned the new earth here and uh, uh the, the new earth is in ref is, is, is what they're going to talk about a lot later on in chapter three but that's essentially i mean that's essentially what they mean by uh a sort of liberation right i mean it it it's, seems to me that that's the direction that they're heading the line the schizo carries along the decoded flows makes them traverse the desert of the body without organs where he installs desiring machines and produces a perpetual outflow of acting forces feels to me like it's emancipatory. Uh, or at least aiming towards that direction. Uh, the, the, the schizo who has passed beyond the limit, as they say, the skiz, which I'm not sure I'm even comfortable saying out loud for some reason. Um, it's such an odd word. Um, but yeah, no, to me, it, it feels like they're talking about it as an emancipatory process. Right. I mean, I think they referred to the new, I've not read the whole book, but they referred to the new earth in the sense that it's, uh, you know, it's what it will, if, if you've seen that famous diagram, right, the way they surgically replace uh, uh, dialectics with psychoanalysis and stuff like that, the diagram on 287 has to, it shows like that's the, pro, that's the process of the flows being decoded to the new earth. They say that the, you know, the nightmare for any society is the decoded flow because that's almost, you know, you don't have the sort of semiotics to understand what the hell a decoded flow is almost for if, when you're listening to a schizophrenic speak. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of this very, it's very alien and it's very, it's, it's almost novel or avant-garde to a certain degree. Yeah, no, I, I think in, 
And to just say very, very carefully, uh, I'm not sure it's uh, just to, when you say it's a nightmare to any society. It's 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 a nightmare almost to the the body without organs. The the standard the uh, the how to put it the hegemony that exists. And I, society, I feel like it's it's such a loaded word. I'm trying to figure out a better way to put it. Um, but I, I I agree with what you're saying. I'm just trying to figure out a better way to phrase it. Anyone else have other thoughts before we move on? What I like about this paragraph is the way that it's like um, it situates schizophrenics as like at this sort of intersection between the social production and the their own sort of desiring production, which means that schizophrenia isn't exactly like something inherent to that individual, right? It's this result of that sort of interplay between the social and the um, individual. Right. And so it's not like they're glorifying schizophrenia when they talk about how schizophrenia is desiring production at its end. It's more that they're saying that these people with this illness are aren't inherently ill, like there's nothing wrong with their brain. It's this sort of intersection between, you know, the complex social forces that they're forced to interact with. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what I mean. That's that's the whole thing of anti-psychiatry t- taken by from R.D. Lane and stuff. So that's, I mean, there's no real, you know, the, the subjectivity is always produced as a secondary of the, the the codings of desire and the movement of desire. So you're very much right in that regard that it's you know it's it's always outside of you that something like this happens. There's real, you know, there's always an impact from outside that you know, there's no real aspect of being schizophrenic from nature that they're referring to because they don't really agree with that, right? Because you don't know what's there on the primordial level. Something about that feels really, like, satisfying for me and, like, emancipatory that, like, subjectivity is secondary or it's just sort of emergent property. That's, uh, I love that. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. I think that's perfect because, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD, but, you know, what if the problem was not with me? What if the problem was the class was just really boring? (laughs) Would anyone like to read the next chapter? Next uh, paragraph, sorry. I keep just saying that for some reason. Or Jack, did you have thoughts? Oh, yeah, I just had a, uh, a quick thought about the um, the passage we just read. I just want to note that um, they, they begin this section by expanding on the previous section, um, which enhances the way they're, they're engaging the psychotic and neurotic distinction in psychoanalysis. And I, I think that's worth noting just because um, that is a major aspect of how psychoanalysis engages uh, people and interpretation. And so I, I really like that one sentence. Um, Everything changes depending on whether we call psychosis the process itself or, on the contrary, an interruption of the process. Uh, which is to say, right, like, if we can't just say that there's the neurotic part accurate um who should participate in a certain oedipal process and that's a way of trying to get them to participate in that process as opposed to the uh, psychotic whose um whose ego is subservient to the id and engages in a process that's um, beyond all this right uh or rather that can only fit into the oedipalization by means of making it um sort of like edipally related and therefore edipally divergent and therefore a threat, right? To kind of displace the psychotic in a sense. Um, I like that they go so far as to say that it's really just a means of understanding the process of desiring production as opposed to trying to demarcate the neurotic and psychotic 
it's actually something that's something to think about i like that um would anyone like to read the next paragraph or should i just jump forward oh actually i wanted to bring up another point that was happening in the chat oh i mean with regard to subjectivity right I, i mean it's it's not so much that you know like the Althusserian notion of subjectivity, I mean, ideology uh, conceives of itself as in, uh, it's conceived of itself in in terms of Althusser, you know, Althusser would conceive of ideology as, as, as the individual living a false reality, right? You know, they have this great line from Wilhelm Reich, right? That the Marxists, Wilhelm Reich didn't look at it in the sense that the Marxists were tricked, Right, I mean, he looked at it that the Marxist. I mean, I mean, sorry, not the Marxist. Wilhelm Reich didn't look look at it that the people, you know, during times of fascist Germany were not tricked. Right, like like an Althusserian Marxist would say something like, "Oh, they were tricked. They were living this false reality." Right, they had this. There's the, the the glasses on. That's that's very much different and very orthogonal to what Deleuze and Guattari are saying here. I mean, their conception of. Uh, <clears throat> Of, of ideology is completely opposite, in my opinion, to someone like Althusser, because Althusser would say it's, it's this idea that you know the masses were tricked; they were living the false reality; they were wearing the glasses, right? I mean, what Deleuze and Guattari are saying, no, they very much because this is the material level; this is the level of purely imminence. They're going to say that no, they very much desired their own repression, right? It's not that they were tricked into repression; they desired their own repression. All right, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the next paragraph, and we'll move on. Um, The schizo knows how to leave. He has made departure into something as simple as being born or dying. But at the same time, his journey is strangely stationary, in place. He does not speak of another world. He is not from another world. Even when he is displacing himself in space, his is a journey in intensity around the desiring machine that is erected here and remains here. For here is the desert propagated by our world, and also the new earth, and the machine that hums, around which the schizos revolve planets for a new sun. These men of desire, or do they not yet exist, are like Zarathustra. They know incredible suffering, vertigos, sicknesses. They have their specters. They must reinvent each gesture. But such a man produces himself as a free man, irresponsible, solitary, and joyous, finally able to say and do something simple in his own name, without asking permission, a desire lacking nothing. A flux that overcomes barriers and codes. A name that no longer designates any ego whatsoever. He has simply ceased being afraid of becoming mad. He experiences and lives himself as the sublime sickness that will no longer affect him. Here, what is? What would a psychiatrist be worth? So I think this, uh, like the top of the sentence of this paragraph seems to be building off of the concluding one from the uh, preceding which is to say um, the skits maintain the production of desire always at the margins of social production, uh, which leads into like the schizo knows how to leave. So this seems to be speaking once again to the the role of um, desiring production and those who are um, participating in this sort of like the way Zarathustra participates in um, the going, the going down and, um, the going up of uh, of man, right? The rising down, the rising below. Uh, with man as like the the line in between uh, the Ubermensch and what is uh, preceding man. But in the same way, it seems to be something similar that the um, the schizo or the, what what Freud would call like the uh, the psychotic 
has a way of getting outside of the margins of social production uh, and, and therefore perhaps even breaking through social repression. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, fair to say, I mean, they don't deny something like the Lacanian symbolic order, right? What Lacan called the symbolic order. They don't deny that. But, but they say that the schizo is outside the symbolic order, which is, I think, a key thing for them. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the audio recordings are recorded on SoundCloud, by the way. But uh, this, this, the schizo is uh, outside the... The, you know the, the the symbolic order, and, and so you know that that's why that whole idea of the decoded flow and uh, being the nightmare of societies it's it's almost you know it's incomprehensible to a certain degree. I mean, I think this idea of like the, the this free man thing, I think it's it's explained best when they talk about the inclusive disjunctions on the body without organs, that notion of the either or, 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 you know, the schizophrenic who could situate themselves as uh, being transsexual and all that, uh, being, you know, having all those, those possible disjunctions on the body without organs. I mean, potential, sorry, possible is not the best word, but potential disjunctions on the body without organs. Well, and they, they talk, I mean, throughout the last few, this whole chapter, they've been talking about kind of what exactly social production is, how it works, how it utilizes uh, effectively the Lacanian symbolic order or the Oedipal triangle or any of these things that basically become uh, the the shape we force things to be within. But desiring production, uh, especially when it creates faults, is the moment when things break. And in those moments of breakage is where... Uh, the, the great moments happen, the, the great sort of movements forward, I guess we could say. And so when they, when they talk about in here, the schizo knows how to leave, uh, his ability to depart that social production, to depart the, 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 the triangulation of Oedipus in, as they've gone over throughout this. But I think it would apply to the Lacanian uh, triad as well. Uh, that they can go outside of that simply through their desiring machine, their desire, and through the power of that. Is that a fair assessment, or am I reading too much into that? Um, I, yeah, but it's not, I don't think it's their conscious will, right? There's no real will. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that they've gone, excellent, here's what I'm going to do today, like satisfaction and decided to be schizo, but more that by nature of not uh, effectively by nature of not caring about any symbolic order. And, and yeah, I think the best quote to understand that it's, it's described perfectly by, uh, by what's it called. They say that, I think we already went through that, but they said the schizophrenic is the only one person who can say something like Oedipus never heard of him. Well, and I think when they, when they talk about uh, that, it's like Zarathustra and it has been, some time since I've read that. Uh, and it, I'm sure someone here has read it more recently and probably a dozen times. But it's, I mean, the story of a man who basically goes in and out of and creates new morality and a new, new everything uh, when he comes through. And so the idea that these, that Zarathustra is effectively one of these, that he, that this new creation of morality, the new, way that the world can be seen uh that god is dead body without organs is dead i suppose uh comes through as sort of that that core message reevaluating everything uh throwing all of the old morality all the old symbolic order all the old ways that we've thought about stuff trash it 
not intentionally because the schizo is not self-aware enough and not doing this by his own will. He simply exists as a conduit basically for his desires, unbridled by symbolic order chaining him down. To speak to how kind of I read Zarathustra, at least what I remember, it's been like a decade. So there we so, so Zarathustra is waiting for the, the Ubermen. And what's interesting about the Ubermensch is that they're the ones closest to the Earth. And so they're, they're not seen as, um, you know, a new kind of dominating figure. And, um, and so I think this, this idea that there's a new Earth is very much uh, in concert with this idea of... Uh, them taking over the Ubermensch as a uh, as a model. I mean, I'm going to ask a related question. Sorry to sorry to jump in. Um, so, the the Ubermensch are seen as closer to the Earth. Uh, again, it's been too long. Can you expand on that? Well, so so the. the when Nietzsche came up with this idea, uh, later interpreters said that the, they were the supermen, right? Right. And um, and 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 so then a lot of uh, commentaries uh, debunk that idea that the Uber that the Ubermensch was uh, some kind of superman. Um, actually, I like a, a science fiction book called The Game Players of Zan. And um, I can't remember the author of that, but but in that they the author gives a picture of what the Ubermensch might have been like, uh, you know, kind of in the 1960s as a kind of like next thing along the evolution of humanity. And so and so, you know, that's the kind of idea that uh, Zara, you know, uh, Nietzsche had, which was, you know, if. If Dar- Darwinian evolution is true, then there has to be the next evolution of humanity. What is that like? And his 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 idea of it, interestingly enough, was that those those people who are the Ubermensch are going to be closer to the Earth, not lost in fantasies of power of controlling the Earth. All right. Okay. So, because um, and I know there's a lot of different ways of reading Nietzsche. Um, but the the idea of the Ubermensch uh, being a bridge between the animal side and what he called the man side, the the side that lived inside of ideas, the 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 over the uh, interesting. Hmm. Um, I, I think just to make a quick point before Ron jumps in, um, I think I want to be careful there because I don't, I don't know if Nietzsche is a Darwinian. Um, in the sense that the Ubermensch, I don't think it's um, something biological. Like what I remember from book one of the the text is that um, Zarathustra comes down and he talks to a saint, and he leaves the saint after um, thinking to himself, "What a lovely old man! If only he had known, or if only he had heard, since he has clearly not heard that God is dead," and that sort of announces. Um, what what is being left behind and the old way of going into the mountain and being an aesthetic and doing that level of um, that work where he goes into the city um, and Zarathustra announces, uh, he gives all these soliloquies 
And what I recall is the Ubermensch is going to be what is beyond man. That is to say um, that man is the line in between the Ubermensch and the um, animality, uncultivated animality. Thank you, animality. And, and what the Ubermensch effectively is, is becoming, is overcoming man. Yes, which is where well, I, so I, I just I, I think Darwinian may be the wrong term, but I think the, the meaning in it, because uh, very much in Zarathustra, there is it's intended to be like progress. So it may not be directly Darwinian, but the idea is the Ubermensch is an evolution, not in the sense of directly Darwinian style evolution, but it is the next step in sort of a journey. He very much talks about that inside of the book. Uh, I mean, that's something I definitely remember. So it may not be directly Darwinian, but it's definitely a thing of progress in the same way that you could say uh, the Hegelian dialectic is intended to be about the pro progress of ideas and the process towards uh, something better, similar. I know I just mixed uh, Hegel and Nietzsche, and now I've got to be struck down by someone in philosophy for what I've said, but just like as a comparison point. Yeah, I mean, Deleuze has this great quote on Nietzsche in, in his book on I mean, Deleuze on his book on Nietzsche has a great quote about Hegel, where he talks about how Nietzsche didn't know Hegel in the sense that he was a critique of him, because he was affirmation, right? If, if the affirmative force, it ignores the dialectic completely, so, you know, then you don't even need to read Hegel. But anyways, uh, the, the, I mean, that's not a dig at Hegel, it's just the way, you know, Nietzsche probably never even read Hegel based on... The oh, no, 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 I, again, I was, I was not trying to make an actual line between them, I was just uh, it, trying to... Trying to make right the concept, the idea of using the word Darwinian, I don't think is necessarily bad. I think the term is, it's the, the lines, uh, just to read directly, because I, I pulled it up, uh, the prologue to all of it. I teach you the overman. Man is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? That that concept of progress uh, right. and that, that we will continue to move forward, I think is, is, is I think it's okay to say Darwin. And, but right now, maybe we're more semantics than anything else. Yeah, I don't know. But anyways, uh, so this we someone mentioned model. I, I think when you ask this question of modeling, I think we need to be very careful with regards to them because you know indifference and repetition. That book's a critique of representation, and I see Antiochus as a direct continuation of that critique of representation. So to say something, you know, as a model for something, aren't we back in this strange kind of representation, right? You know, it's like you can take Judge Schraber, for example, uh, the movement that Judge Schraber makes. But by taking Judge Schraber, I think Judge Schraber is in the process of detailing production. They're not saying that we're all secretly like Judge Schraber. It's just that Judge Schraber is this way that we're all represented under. No, no, no. That's, that would be too, you know, that would be too Freudian for them. So they won't say something on that. What, what... What they mean by models, it's, it's, I mean, what they mean by saying someone's like something is something completely different. They mean that, you know, it's not that we're all secretly schizophrenic. It's the sense that, you know, the flows can be physically, it's all material. The flows can be physically moved in a certain way to make us, you know, either paranoiac or to be moved in a specific way to make, make us match that state. It's, it's, it's more about these different states or modes of being that they're referring to when they say they're like something rather than they represent the other person. They're saying that they're, there's a specific mode of being that they've been transformed into, right? So like, uh, you know, so someone who lives, someone could be paranoiac in their mode of being where their flows of desire are restricted or someone can be schizophrenic in their mode of being where their flows of desire are, you know, 
uh, inclusive, not rather than exclusive. And I mean, that's I mean that's their idea of model. I don't think it's it's sort of like they're built. So we need to be very careful when we say like even when they say the word like, we need to be very careful when we're analyzing that. Well, and I also want to just go in uh, the the section here that speaks to me and that I've I've read a few times even as you've been talking, and I apologize for that. Is um, the these men of desire. Uh, uh, they know incredible sufferings, vertigos, and sicknesses. They have their specters. They must reinvent each gesture. But such a man produces himself a free man, irresponsible, solitary, and joyous, able to say and do something simple in his own name without asking permission. Uh, I that, that does actually feel to me as though it is very much in reference of kind of how I interpreted the Ubermensch as a concept with Nietzsche. Not to go back to Nietzsche and just keep beating this dead horse. Haha, get it? Um, but it's a uh, maybe not. But it, that that section is very much this speaking towards that idea of the. Uh, I, it was a funny joke. I don't care. It was a funny joke. Um, but the idea that he produces himself a free man, that he he doesn't have to ask permission. He's able to do something simple in his own name, is again speaking towards that emancipatory. Uh, the emancipatory power of the whole thing. Hmm, maybe. I just like that line. I really just like that line. The idea we would be able to forego social production, uh, and maybe this is why it speaks to all of us, uh, the idea we could forego the symbolic order that we're trapped in, the, the repression that we exist within inside of society, and do something just simple for ourselves without having to ask permission. Such a simple, easy thing to to, to want. Uh, would anyone like to read the next paragraph? Excellent. Why don't you? I'll volunteer. In the whole, in the whole psychology, only Jaspers, then Lang, have grasped what process signified and its fulfillment, and so escaped the familialism that is the ordinary bed and board of psychoanalysis and psychiatry. Quote, if the human race survives, future men will, I suspect, look back on our enlightened epoch as a veritable age of capital D darkness. They will presumably be able to savor the irony of this situation with more amusement than we can extract from it. The laughs on us. They will see what we call schizophrenia was one of the forms in which, often though quite ordinary people, the light began to break through the cracks in our all-too-closed minds. Madness not, need not be all breakdown, it may also be breakthrough. The person going through ego loss or transcendental experiences may or may not become in different ways confused. Then he might legitimately be regarded as mad, but to be mad is not necessarily to be ill, notwithstanding that in our culture the two categories have become confused. From the alienated starting point of our pseudo-sanity, everything is equivocal. Our sanity is not true sanity. Their madness is not true madness. The madness of our patients is an artifact of the destruction wreaked on them by us and by them on themselves. Let no one suppose that we meet true madness 
any more than we are truly sane. The madness that we are, the madness that we encounter is patience. Is a gross tra- traverse. Uh, the madness that we encounter in patience is a gross travesty, a mockery, a grotesque caricature of what the natural healing of that estranged interrogation, sorry, estranged integration we call sanity might be. True sanity entails, in one way or another, the dissolution of the normal ego. End quote. Um, I, I think uh, I would like to just read the, the footnote to this, because I think it explains some of this very well. In a closely connected cell sense, Michel Foucault announced, perhaps one day, one will no longer know clearly what madness really was. Our toe will belong to the ground of our language and not to its rupture. Everything that we experience today in the mode of the limit or the strangeness or of the unbearable will have joined again with the serenity of the positive. And what for us currently designates this exterior stands a chance one day of designating us. Madness is a breaking. Its kinship lies ties with mental illness. Madness and mental illness are ceasing to belong to some anthropological entity. Ooh, ooh, I like that. What is that from? What is that from? Uh, it's R.D. Lang's Politics of Experience. Well, Libgen, let's see what you've got for me today. That's excellent. That's really great, actually. Um, oh, wow. Hey. So, uh, Foucault and Derrida had this argument about madness which is very interesting. And uh, uh, in that uh, argument that they had, the question was whether madness is inside of reason or outside. And so what's interesting about this argument is that it's seeing madness as the transition to the, the, you know, the Ubermensch, uh, to the next stage of humanity. And certainly, uh, that's probably true, that that if there was a next stage of humanity, uh, then, uh, you know, to to us, it would look mad. Their their reasoning would look mad. I mean, you take, uh, take someone like Van Gogh, right? I mean, he was outside the symbolic order to a certain degree in the sense that, you know, his paintings, no one understood them. You know, they, they were too ahead of its time and he was treated almost mad. But, uh, you know, when he, when he became, I mean, after he died, but it's almost ahead of its time, you know, he started getting appreciation. I mean, I see something very similar to that, to what they're talking about here. And you can even tie it back to something like Plato's cave. Yeah, I mean, what I get from it is not so much like um, a fascination with getting to the Ubermensch. What I get from this is more like, and it's very much still in, in the spirit of that text, um, what have you done to overcome man? Instead of asking the question, what have you done to overcome man? It seems like the question is more uh, more akin to something like, are you comfortable being yourself without being afraid of uh, being labeled mad. And I think that, and that might be a little bit of a rough way of phrasing it, but I think that's the question they're kind of uh, poising here, especially in the sense that 
uh, madness is contextually established and in a Foucauldian sense is institutionally ordained, right? Um, and in the same way, uh, I think he's got a point here. When we do look back on the Enlightenment and some of the practices they have, um, Foucault is right. We do look back on them as um, as the, the rational people, people being, in a sense, madder than the people they were trying to cure. So uh, there's definitely being an irony to that, too. Right. I mean, I see this entire section to a certain degree, almost them describing like the avant-garde or something like that. Yeah, I can see in the avant-garde in the sense that like just being on the cutting edge means um, just being comfortable in a sense with the, the I don't want to reduce it too much, much, but I risk making it a platitude. But being in the avant-garde doesn't mean trying to get ahead of the curve. It just means kind of doing the work you're already inclined to do in that, right? As opposed to trying to fit a certain model um, that prescribes what should be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, you know, and then, you know, it's, it's, it's too ahead of its time or something, and then it gets treated as something, you know, some garbage. It takes time for people to really understand what you're trying to do. <laughs> Well, and so, and I've always taken this section, um, again, this, this whole, everything from here on out becomes parts that I really like because it's on the more poetic side of things. But this paragraph very much I've taken to be uh, talking through essentially that schizophrenia is uh, causal of the uh, social repression, coupling with a person's desiring machines, ultimately forcing them to break uh, that uh, at a material level, that these things interact in a way that forces a person to become schizophrenic. It's not a choice, as we said in the last paragraph. It's not a decision, but instead, this is just sort of the nature of the breaks. And while we may call these breaks currently uh, mental illness, uh, uh, psychiatric problems, all of these things, the schizophrenia that appears uh, is actually the result purely of the way that these things interact. And it's actually our freedom, our emancipation can be found inside of those breaks, and that we will look back in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, whenever this uh, process ultimately you know, uh, takes hold and, and completes. And we will see this as very much uh, a different way of thinking, uh, that it was sort of uh, the, the way that we look back on uh, slavery, the way that we look back on uh, the harsh repression of the Dark Ages or the harsh repression of ancient Greece in its own ways, that we will look back on this um, in the same way and say that these were the people who broke and actually showed us that there's this other, there's this other way, that they are the symptom of the sickness, that the sickness is, is larger. And of course, they, they're and I agree with them. capitalism being that issue, that social repression and social production that exists uh, causing this. How I always took it. Um, I agree with what you're saying, but I think we should be careful about the word like freedom, right? Because it seems to me that it's like there's this emancipatory possibility, but it's not like, you know, inevitable. It's not like tele teleological where it's we're only going to progress. Right. It seems to me like they're setting up that this sort of intersection between desiring production and social production is kind of the break that I think fascism can get into. Right. And that's where that's yeah, where it's, it no, no, 
the the freedom as they talk about in the last one it the 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 freedom and i'm putting air quotes in the air you can't see uh that exists within the sketch so uh, is coupled it's it's freedom on the one hand the ability to do things without asking permission the ability to exist outside of social repression but at the same time it, they suffer greatly with vertigos sufferings and sicknesses they have their specters that there is that it's not like this glorious oh i am pure greatness all this everything is wonderful that it is a it's not a good existence like when i when i use the word emancipatory i'm more talking about the potential of it rather than the actual so just to uh, so when, when i say freedom i'm talking about the potentiality in it and that it can teach us about kind of what's happening around if we are able to look at it in the correct light which i think is the point of their project here okay yeah i agree with that so uh, yes yes i want i want to bring up why they mentioned the espers so in 1936, Jaspers came out with his three volumes on philosophy, which is summarized in Reason and Existence. Um, and uh, Jaspers um, took his philosophy from a kind of abstraction from the philosophies of Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, but mostly uh, uh, from Kierkegaard. And kind of disentangling the attitude of Kierkegaard toward transcendence from uh, the the religious basis of it in uh, Kierkegaard, and um, and so Kierkegaard's philosophy is very much about looking at the transcendent, and existence is the um, uh, is the part in the human that can uh, relate to the transcendent. And so, you know, I mean, the thing is that from the human being to the ubermensch, the ubermensch is, has already gone past and transcended the human condition in some way. And so, and so there's a theme here kind of beneath the surface with the continual mentions of Jaspers in this book of the relationship to uh, a transcendent uh, rather than transcendental unconsciousness. Thank you. Um... I think uh, the next uh, paragraph, I would love it if uh, Varun, if you would take a moment and go ahead and give that a read if you're up for it. Right, okay. Uh, it says, I mean, this is about the painter, British painter William Turner. He was a romantic, part of the Romantic movement, whatever. I mean, so, so, I mean, it's referring to how his painting got more and more incomprehensible as time went on, right? It became almost more and more experimental. So, I think what they you know, actually. When they reference London, is is actually I think pretty sure they're referencing the Tate Museum. So that's what that I think they have the biggest collection of Williams, of Turner's paintings. They the do. Visit, they do. The visit to London is our visit to Pythia. By the way, Pythia is uh, is is I don't know if you got, any of you guys have read Oedipus Rex, but Pythia is the Oracle of Delphi, as famously seen in Oedipus Rex. Turner is there. Looking at his paintings, one understands what it, what it means to scale the wall and yet to remain behind it, to cause flows to pass through without knowing any longer whether they are carrying us elsewhere or flowing back over us already. The paintings range over three periods. If the psychiatrist were allowed to speak here, he could talk about the first two, although they are in fact the most reasonable. The first canvases are of end of end end-of-the-world catastrophes, avalanches, and storms. There's a famous piece, The Slave Ship. I think it's a good example of that. That's where Turner begins. The paintings of the second period are somewhat like the delirious reconstruction or the delirium hides, or rather, 
where it is on par with a lofty technique inherited from Poussin, Lorraine, or the Dutch function. But something incomparable happens at the level of the, of, of the thir- level of the third of the paintings of the third period. Sorry, you skipped a line. Oh, sorry. Was I'm- Oh, sorry, yeah. The, the world is reconstructed through our archaeas as having a modern function. But something incomparable happens at the level of the, of the, of the paintings of the third period. In, this, in the series, Turner does not exhibit but keeps secret. It cannot even be said that he is far ahead of his time. There is something ageless and comes to us from an eternal future. Or flees toward it. The canvas turns in on itself. It is pierced by, by a hole, a lake, a flame, a tornado, an explosion. The themes of the preceding paintings are to be found again here. Their meaning changed. The canvas is truly broken, surrounded, sun, sundered by what penetrates it. All that remains is a background of gold and fog, intense, intensive, traversed in depth by what just surrendered the breath, the skiz. Everything becomes mixed and confused, and it is here that the breakthrough, that the breakdown occurs. Yes, I, I mean those. Uh, I, I tried to. Uh, I tried to give examples of uh, some some of these paintings. I mean, so his style eventually, towards later parts of his life, it became a lot more experimental and incomprehensible. So, like you see that I pinned them in the chat. So, like this first one about you know the, the, that castle is perfectly you can perfectly make it out. Then the second one about the slave ship, it gets much more you know experimental. But the third one, I mean, it's so inco- it's so incomprehensible to to someone to really. I mean, get, get, I mean, get, get a close idea of what it uh, really means as compared to other ones. It becomes, you know, that I think that's what they mean by the by the breakthrough, right? It's, it's, it's he's created something completely new, right? And, you know, like their understanding of like the schizo stroll is uh, something in reference to um, just creation, right? Endless production, and, and, and you know that that's that's what he's almost trying to reference to here, and, and so. What they mean, I think specifically about this idea of being eternal to time and outside time, I think this has a close semblance to, if any of you guys have read the introduction to Difference and Repetition, um, Deleuze talks about the untimely, and he references like a novel by Samuel Butler, which actually first appears in a, in a, in a lecture given by Raman Ruyer. I think Deleuze was influenced by that, but he references Samuel Butler's uh, year one, which is actually nowhere spelled backwards, but the E and the H are spelled in the regular direction as the untimely of being experimental in that sense. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's existing in all these, it's, it's literally has a different mode of existence. I, I certainly love the discussion here of Turner uh, and it, his change over time. And as he, as he moved on, it got crazier, but it's, the at the same time and it's i i can't help but bring uh, uh cinema one and two and how Deleuze views things from the perspective of uh perception uh when you see cinema and i look at these paintings and i i see the same things very much when you're talking about his earlier works with the castle and it's so uh specific and concrete that you are looking at a castle with a few horses uh, and it's not even actually how, if you see that castle in real life, it's not actually how it feels um, to see that castle. Whereas the third picture is a sun setting over a lake. And uh, it, it, it's an amazing piece to see. Uh, and it, I think it comes through in the even in the online image very well. It, it is how it feels to see a sun setting over a lake. Yeah, it, I mean... It, there's an amazing perceptive quality to it that is just amazing. 
I, I don't want to get super into this right now, but uh, there's a there's a really great lecture you can find that Deleuze gave on Spinoza on how he differentiates Spinoza's uh, aspect of capital I ideas being representational on the capital A affect that Spinoza calls affect being non-representational. And it goes hand in hand with some of this. I think it's a great lecture to check out with regards to something like this. Yeah, and at some point, I think we're going to have to do a reading of Bergsonism. Uh, we're trying to set up for Cinema 1 and 2, and I think all of these just apply. But uh, it's really worth, if you get a chance, uh, the if you head to the uh, uh, museum's website. Oh, God damn it, dropped my brain. Uh, where Name the museum. Room, Tate, please. Yeah, Tate, Tate in London. Thank you. It has uh, the you, biggest collection, I think. If, if you happen to be in London, it's absolutely worth going. If you happen to be online, they have everything online. And it's worth going through and looking through. All of Turner's works are there. And there are a few that are, uh, I, I just find them just completely beautiful. Uh, yeah, yeah, just beautiful. I'd like to give a, a quick note before we move on. Um, since we're talking about the process, um, there's a few processes we can observe in this passage. One would be, uh, in this case, going to London or Pythia, right? Like a sort of process of a journey or even like um, this kind of a idea of like going to a, a cultural institution and looking for some level of inspiration there. Um, but there's also the process of creating paintings in that. Um, if you very often we hear artists and, and writers, whether they're academic or not, talk about the creative process and what they do to do these works. But I think the process they focus the most on here is the sort of the process of process in um, Turner's work, which seems to be the progression from these three waves, the first being like a depiction of like a sort of... Um, intense, almost catastrophic nature. Things like um, avalanches, right? So very intense, um, sort of, um, I don't want to call it floodings, but effluxes of movement and mass to um, an almost anachronistic way of looking at um, things in modernity, right? Like, so like the... Um, I think we were talking about the castle that we find in, in our contemporary world today. And this, like, Deleuze calls it an archaism. I would call it almost anachronistic in the sense that it it doesn't belong, but there it is. Um, and in that sense, it can be also understood as archaic and part of the historic materiality. And then the third phase being this way that this is all, right, so it's a movement out of a sort of catastrophic flows of nature out of, um, into sort of an um, anachronistic um, landscapes and that, into a sort of like a reevaluation of the two and a sort of um, at the level where the, the form of the canvas breaks, that is to say that um, one goes beyond the medium in a sense, but one, uh, I think to be clearer there, they go beyond the ideas that come with the medium or the forms that are given to them. Uh, like an easy example of this for, from a literary perspective would be E.E. E. Cummings' engagement with sonnets. But I think that third movement um, in, in this process of the creative process 
uh, at this like larger long-term sense is kind of critical in this paragraph. I mean, you can name like hundreds of like artists and stuff like the big ones, like Marcel Duchamp, for example, right? He's also mentioned a couple times in this, you know, like Joseph Kassout and all those people. But also just uh, before we move on, just point out the language once again that they use at the very end. Everything becomes mixed and confused. And it is here that the breakthrough, not the breakdown, occurs. Uh, the the breaking moments of these machines and of the repression, they've talked about how it happens many times throughout this chapter. Uh, and this in this specific section, they are hammering home the idea that when these breaks happen, they are not breakdowns. They are breakthroughs, that they are uh, moments where we're able to see light shining through from whatever that may be. Uh, plane of eminence would be my guess, but, you know, everyone's got their thoughts. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the next uh, uh, section, and we'll just keep uh, charging ahead uh, because it continues, I think, mostly these same thoughts. Uh, strange Anglo-American literature from Thomas Hardy from D.H. Lawrence to Malcolm Lowry, from Henry Miller to Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. Men who knew how to leave, to scramble the codes, to cause flows to circulate, to traverse the desert of the body without organs. They overcome a limit. They shatter a wall, the capitalist barrier. And of course they fail to complete the process. They never cease failing to do so. The neurotic impasse again closes. The daddy mommy of Oedipalization. America the return to the native land, or else the perversion of the exotic territorialities. Then drugs, alcohol, or worse still, an old fascist dream. Never has delirium oscillated more between its two poles. But through the impasses and the triangles, the schizophrenic flow moves, irresistibly. Sperm, river, drainage, inflamed genital mucus, or a stream of words that do not let themselves be coded. A libido that is too fluid, too viscous, a violence against syntax, a concerted destruction of the signifier, nonsense erected as a flow, polyvocity that returns to haunt all relations. How poorly the problem of literature is put, starting from the ideology that it bears, or from the co-option of it by social order. People are co-opted, not works, which will always come to awake a sleeping youth, and which never cease extending their flame. As for ideology, it is the most confused notion because it keeps us from seizing the relationship of the literary machine with the field of production and the moment when the emitted sign breaks through this form of the content that was attempting to maintain the sign within the order of the signifier. Yet it has been a long time since Ingalls demonstrated, already apropos of Balzac, how an author is great because he cannot prevent himself from tracing flows and causing them to circulate. Flows that split asunder the Catholic and despotic signifier of his work, and that necessarily nourish a revolutionary machine on the horizon. That is what style is, or rather the absence of style, asyntactic, agrammatical, the moment when language is no longer defined by what it says, even less by what, it ma by what makes it a signifying thing, but by what causes it to move, to flow, and to explode. Desire. For literature is like schizophrenia, a process and not a goal, a production and not an expression. I, I think this is, so this is, there's a couple things here. I mean, there's some elements from the logic of sense also. There's some elements from difference and repetition. There's some elements even from like their future works in a thousand plateaus and stuff. You know, they start by giving the examples of, you know, like, 
like the beat poets, for example, like Allen Ginsberg and uh, 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 Jack Kerouac and stuff. And, you know, they, they I, I wonder, I think there is an interesting discussion also to be had about the fact that, you know, they post about literature, like, like uh, I think Kerouac and Ginsberg and people like Burroughs, I think their books were banned a lot um, back in the U.S. at a time like that because it was I don't know, apparently, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure part of it, the, talking about that too. But I mean, specifically this idea that writing is not expressive, I think this is best like understood in that, you know, and if you guys have read like that opening chapter from A Thousand Plateaus, I'll just like to read it out now because I think it explains perfectly what they mean by that the book is not expressive. And it's specifically to do with the idea of that the book's not representational, right? They don't believe in that hermeneutics game that psychoanalysis play, plays, right? The book is not... Um, it's not supposed to it's not supposed to you know you're not asking what does the book mean you're asking what does the book do and what does the book have the potential to do you know that's how art gains its meaning the fact that it it, it does something right it, it, it has some affect and it has some it, it has a cause and effect to it so we will never ask what a book means as signified or signifier we will not look for anything to understand in it we will ask what it functions with in connection with the other things it does or does not transmit intensities in which other multiplicities its own are inserted and metamorphized and with what bodies without organs it makes its own coverage a book exists only through the outside and on the outside a book itself is a little machine what is the relation also measurable of this literal machine to a war machine love machine revolutionary machine etc and an abstract machine that sweeps them all along we've been criticized for overquoting literary authors far too much and so that 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 thing that they talk about in i mean atp this is essentially this idea of being non-representational right as soon as you ask this question of meaning you start to go into transcendence right you get into oedipus you get into these paralogisms of transcendence and you don't live purely under imminence as they want to understand these things but i want to ask kent palmer specifically about you know because they i'm pretty sure there's a mention of reference to logic of sense here with that idea of that how they refer to nonsense, right? So I'm understanding it as the decoded flow being outside of, outside of the social order, the outside of the social order, outside of the symbolic order, and something that's you know, it's 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 the complete you know it's a complete alien to everything else. Yeah, I think you're right. There is uh, seems to be a mixture of references to earlier works uh, here, um, and. You know, logic of sense is one of the more interesting ones, although I think uh, difference in repetition is the more radical. Right, but uh, do you think they're using, uh, the when they say nonsense erected as a flow, you think they're referencing it in the same way that they use nonsense in logic of sense? Yeah, so my reading of uh, logic of sense is that um, the... So the idea is that the... Um, you know, the unconscious is is kind of uh, there's a surface to it, and on that surface, it's like there's uh, uh, like like we talk about virtual particles being created and destroyed. Uh, it's kind of like sense and nonsense are being created and destroyed on this surface, and so and so uh, in logic of sense, they're focusing right on that surface, and they're saying. Let's not go to the heights or the depths. Let's just focus right on the circus surface. And they use Lewis Carroll and um, his uh, his various works as as their key to looking at the relationship between sense and nonsense. 
Right. I mean, so there's actually a line that I w- would like to pose for a deeper discussion other than this idea of difference in repetition, uh, like the non-representation of difference in repetition and logical sense. I think there's one key line here that refers directly to, you know, social production. How poorly the problem of literature is put starting from the ideology that it bears or from the co-option of it by a social order. People are co-opted, not works, which will always come to wake a sleeping youth and which will never cease to exceeding their flames. I mean, so I... I, I at least there's an interesting conversation going on in chat right now, but I think they're referring to the idea that, you know, these books get banned, right? Like Howell went on trial, Allen Ginsberg's Howell went on trial and stuff. So I'd like to hear what other people's thoughts are on this matter. Well, for me, the, the section that uh, my brain sticks on uh, is when he talks about uh, the inability of uh, of all of us to be able to place uh, literature inside of its production and attach it to production properly. And it's a thing I've, uh, the literary, uh, the, the quote, as for ideology, it is the most confused notion because it keeps us from seizing the relationship of the literary machine with the field of production. And the moments the emitted sign breaks through this form of the content that was attempting to maintain the sign within the order of the signifier. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the things, of course, uh, Zizek in his uh, book very much hammers on and really goes after loose work because it's kind of antithetical to what um, what <laughs> Zizek's. Yes, I know, I know, Varun. Fuck Zizek, you don't care for him. Uh, but I think it's it's an interesting uh, concept to actually talk about uh, the the literary machine uh, to talk about it as though it's one of these apparatuses that is generating literature and that we are unable. Uh, 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 keeps us, I think he's talking about the royal us, um, from seizing the literary machine with a field of production. Uh, I really like that idea that we're unable to do that, except for uh, talking about it in terms of the medium. Uh, he, he's earlier and later on in this book, we'll talk about film, and he goes on quite a bit to talk about uh, film. But uh, going through all of these different mediums and talking about kind of their signifiers, their meanings, and all of those things, the ability for us to uh, or sort of talk about the literary machine itself and what it's producing in terms of meaning uh, outside of ideology, I think is an interesting concept. Just want to expand on a couple points there, um, especially as we're talking about the medium. Uh, this past Saturday, we finished um, our discussion of William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And one of the things we discussed is the way that, um, so, so I'm not going to go too far into it because it's a very dense section of, a, uh, of the work. But Blake has this image where um, the narrator takes an angel to their eternal lot, which is supposed to be, in a way, sort of like their, their sort of eternal fear and anxiety, right? In the same way that we question our, is our eternal lot heaven or hell? Uh, in this way, the narrator is showing a kind of hell to uh, this angel. And part of that hell includes dragging um, a skeleton holding Aristotle's analytics, which um, I think could most readily be not just the organon, but I think more appropriately the poetics, which is to say, uh, that there's this way we engage literature where we try to pick apart a text through the mode of form and through the more mode of like um, a sort of uh, systematic, systematic, 
systematizing so as to talk about the schema and move away from um, move away from the work itself, or at least that can be the risk of it. Um, and I think that's kind of what I'm seeing in Deleuze here is that there's talking about the novel as form, and then there's talking about uh, Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano and what he's doing in this this particular text. I'll also say, um, just to give a final thought, I, I, I like what Deleuze is saying too here because it's not just the process, it's not just the creative process of developing the text, it's also like music, right? Like the process of listening to music, the process of reading the text, um, that includes levels of reflection, of interpretation, that the um, the reader or the, the audience actively engages in, in the same way that's, um, in the same way that the musician is actively producing notes and actively producing things in connection with form, but that are not uh, simply the form itself. Um, in the same way, uh, I, I would say that uh, even when we read this text, we're, we're engaging in that level of um, interpretation. And I think that's important to the point of people being co-opted rather than texts being co-opted, which is to say that people's interpretations are the states much more so than the texts themselves. Right. I mean, uh, you know, like actually me and Rick were talking about Syria earlier, but like you take the example of, you know, Robert Mapplethorpe, who was a famous photo photographer in the 80s, right? You know, there was this like uh, sort of far-right governor who wanted to ban a lot of his work from from, from like the gallery or something because uh, apparently, apparently they found it like... You know, it's, 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 he was like a homoerotic photographer. So, so he he led a bunch of protests to ban to ban that work, saying it was causing the rise of AIDS and like a bunch of bullshit like that. And you know, there's like a similar thing happened to the left last year. I think you know the same thing happened. Like a bunch of people wanted to ban the Joker movie almost. You know, so, so it's 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 sort of like it's it's it, it, I think that's what they mean by art getting co-opted, right? It gets banned. In the left, we had like the Joker movie, and the right, we had a lot of like great photography by Robert Mapplethorpe but I mean yeah I mean I, I'd be curious though what, what do you mean by the word form right because I, 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 we need to be careful what we mean by like because you know, it, it, it's, it's I think this is the whole schema that he builds up in difference and repetition with the idea that it's it's you know you can't understand something from you know what it is you have to understand from what it does and what it has the potential to do so I'll give a very quick um, answer. By form, I mean something like the novel, something like plot structure, something like um, the literary devices of symbolism, of metaphor, of hyperbole. Uh, these are elements of form. These are elements of literary devices that we use to talk about the books we read. And so, like, I don't think those are off the table, but I think we have to be... I think what Deleuze is talking about is that uh, things don't stop at the literary device of hyperbole. That is to say, if we're going to talk about, um, uh, say, Blake's use of, of, of symbolism, we have to be careful not to try and place try and place everything in the context of, of the uh, sort of discourse of symbolism itself and thereby negate the work that we're actually discussing. Or rather, if we're going to draw on, on symbolism to understand Blake, 
it's going, I think, going to have to be in relation to this um, this kind of production that Blake is engaging in uh, as an author. Right. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's the whole Roland Barth thing. And I think like a bunch of post-structuralist literary critics like uh, Derrida would agree with you there. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, the key thing here, though, is that it's it's the, the book cannot be under the book is not representational. Right. The book is something that does something and produces an affect. Right. It 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 it. Uh, um, it, 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 it ha- that's the relationship between that and, and you know a thing is only you know you can only understand the identity of a thing through the affix or like the ontological condition of a thing through through what it produces or what it has the capacity to produce so i think yeah i think i'll agree with you then wouldn't he i mean it seems to me that he's throwing all of these things that we're talking about uh, or that uh, jack just went through under the sort of uh under the enveloping concept of the literary machine, that these things are, as a literary machine, these are the the parts of the apparatus that ultimately generate literary or that, that make that thing a reality, uh, and and that by uh, uh, when the admitted sign breaks through this form of the content that was attempting to maintain the sign within the order of the signifier, that's the moment. Uh, that the the desiring production happens, or maybe I'm misreading. So that's why I use the example of Blake and the Analytics, where we're a text about how to understand literary machines in Deleuzian terms, where a text about how to understand literary machines uh, becomes the new medium of understanding literary machines, right? So now instead of reading Prometheus Bound um, and trying to trying to understand what, what Aeschylus is doing, but also understanding uh, what's going on when we read it and our interpreting of it and our engagement with the text. We start to rely on notions like, oh, well, this is Prometheus's hamartia, and so then this must be the anagnorsis. And you start building this thing, and then you're like, oh, yes, yeah, so uh, this must be uh, Aeschylus warning us not to go against the gods. And like you can make that sort of argument, and, and say, right, like the Greek tragedy is just working to sort of warn people what not to do. But the problem with something like that is then you get completely outside of the text, and now you're dealing with a, a very Aristotelian take on the text, which you can still argue for. But it's going to be difficult when someone comes back and says, actually, I think Aeschylus is saying we need to go against certain powers, right? I don't think Prometheus is really um, damnable, right? And so... That kind of that kind of larger discourse I see is what uh, Deleuze is talking about here. Okay, fair enough. Okay, right. But I, th- I think at the very basic level, it's it's this whole idea that you know you can't understand something to the transcendence of representation. You only understand it through its imminence. That's I think that's I, th- I think that's what he means by the book being like schizophrenia. Yeah, that's why people have to be co-opted rather than texts, because people plug into the text. Right. If yeah, if you co-opt the text, then that becomes another representation. Yes. Okay, that makes that makes a lot more sense, uh, because we're talking about how things plug in and out of each other again with the flows of desire, the flows of repression, flows of everything. And so, okay, that's starting to make a lot more sense to me. Thank you. Uh, I'd just like to mention, uh, you know, Blake also wrote a, a, a work called The Four Zoas. And uh, 
it didn't get published during his life, and eventually Yates uh, was responsible for bringing it out. And, um, and, and this is a really amazing text. And it was written about the same time as uh, Hegel wrote uh, Phenomenology of Spirit. And, um, and so, you know, uh, if you wanted to see a radical text that never, you know, that was kind of like an aborted, because it never got published, because he knew that if he, he published it, so much trouble would occur because of that. That, um, you know, if you want to see that radical kind of text, uh, I recommend the Four Zoas. Yeah, and I mean, like, if you want to see, like, what they mean by literature happening, you can see it happening itself in this book itself, in my opinion, right? That you, the book is written in, a, this book especially, and even A Thousand Plateaus more so to some degree, is written in a non-representational manner, right? You, you don't know who's talking, right? Is it, is it, the, is it the psychoanalyst who's topic talking? Is it, the, is it the bourgeoisie? Is it the proletariat? Is it, is it the, the, clin- the clinician? Is it the madman or is it the schizo who's talking? You don't really know. I mean, you're only, you can un- only understand what who's talking based on their actions or what they have the potential to act. Well, and a lot of a thousand plateaus, and I mean, less, much less of this text, I think, but to a point, is is very much written for all of those things to be accurate. Where depending on how you're coming at the text or where you're starting it from or how you dive into it, it's intended to be rhizomatic in that sense. And so the ability for a clinician to start it on a bad day and get something deeply different out of it than, say, I would on Tuesday, uh, I think it's very much the intention of the text. Um, and I, and I just to say out loud, Varun mentioned it in the text that we should be doing a reading of Thousand Plateaus, and I'm in agreement with that. If anyone has an idea of how we can do that without literally just having two readings going simultaneously of two of the most difficult fucking books that you can do readings of. I'm very much up for it. I don't know if we can do two of those a week, though. Um, but speaking of difficult, uh, back to Oedipalization, would anyone like to read the next paragraph? I'll volunteer if no one else oh, wants. Yeah. Dive through. Go for it. Alrighty. Here again. Oedipalization is one of the most important factors in the reduction of literature to an object of consumption conforming to the established order, and incapable of causing anyone harm. It is not a question here of the personal Oedipalization of the author and his readers, but of the Oedipal form to which one attempts to enslave the work itself, to make of it this minor expressive activity that secretes ideology according to the dominant codes. The work of art is supposed to inscribe itself in the fashion between the two poles of Oedipus, problem and solution, neurosis and sublimation, desire and truth, the one regressive, where the work hashes out and redistributes the non-resolved conflicts of childhood, and the other perspective by which the work invents the paths leading toward a new solution concerning the future of man. It is said that the work is constituted by a conversion interior to itself as a so-called cultural object. From this point of view, there is no longer even any need for applying psychoanalysis to the work of art, since the work itself constitutes a successful psychoanalysis, a sublime so-called transference, 
with its exemplary collective virtualities. The hypocritical warning resounds. A little neurosis is good for the work of art, good material, but not psychosis, especially not psychosis. We draw a line between the eventually creative neurotic aspect and the psychotic aspect, alienating and destructive. As if the great voices, which were capable of performing a breakthrough in grammar and syntax, and of making all language a desire, were not speaking from the depths of psychosis, and as they, if they were not demonstrating for our benefit an eminently psychotic and revolutionary means of escape. I mean, is, any, is, is anyone really familiar with, like, uh, I mean, in terms of literary theory, with, like, a psychoanalytical reading of a text? Has anyone ever tried that before? I mean, it's, it's essentially, I think, aren't we, isn't one of our sister reading groups doing going through Looking Awry, through Zizek's psychoanalytic readings of films, um, and, and the nature of a lot of things he's discussing there? I, I mean, That's right. There is a reading of Looking Awry going on. Um, it's it's very, I, I, I this this paragraph uh, to me talks about, uh, and it's a difficult one, um, because it's talking about sort of the nature of how art works, but doing it in a very wide ranging concept. Uh, it opens with the idea of uh, turning uh, literature or art. Uh, I think their literature here is a stand-in because they continue to use a work of art. Uh, uh, interchangeably almost throughout the rest of the paragraph. Uh, reduction of literature to an object of consumption, conforming to the established order. Uh, reading it through the lens of a societal need, through the way that society needs a, a, a thing to be read. I, this is, I, again, and I know you guys just are going to love who I'm about to bring up, but uh, Zizek deeply talks about this through a lot of uh, his readings through popular culture, and it's one of the things I very much have always loved about his 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 insight into the way that ideology plays a factor into how these pieces are made and how people perceive them. Because there's, I think, a couple different ways psychoanalytically to talk about how you an analyze something. Uh, there is what I would call the very standard psychoanalytic reading where you are looking at something in this case and i think very commonly through the oedipal lens through a very hyper traditionalist uh oh here is this man represents inside of the story structure this is the father this is the caring mother here's the rebellious moment here's the all is lost moment things like that uh, it's a very very standard story structure and if you go back through the last say 100 years of film or 300 years of literature or whatever it may be, you tend to find very, very, very standard structures. Uh, in the last 40 years, uh, there have been sort of another take in the psychoanalytic reading of things through the ideology and, and semiotics of things. And it's uh, Zizek's sort of mentality very much goes that direction where Jaws isn't about the father saving everyone, the lawman who does come back to eventually save uh, the children. Uh, from the corrupt officials and from danger that's outside, but instead is a reading of direct capitalism. And uh, his 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 version of psychoanalytic reading is, I think, different than what they're discussing here. But I'm happy if anyone would disagree with me on that point. Um, so, so, I mean, I think what they're emphasizing here is the very real movement of art. The, the fact that it's real, right? I mean, or... or, or uh, 
psychoanalysis imbues a, rep a representational transcendence. What they're talking about is very imminent with the art itself, right? It's the fact that there's already transference in the art, right? The fact that you like something, the fact that you don't like something, the fact right. that it caused, it caused it an effect for you, the fact that it doesn't cause an effect for you. There's already something very real happening there. So, you know, you don't need to go further beyond that, right? You just need to, it's, it's already affecting you in a certain way. Um, um, okay. I want I wanted to make a point about like the, that when they say Oedipal form, I think that they're sort of making a dual meaning where they they're talking about Oedipal as you know a psychoanalytic structure, but they're also talking about Oedipus as the, you know the guy who solved the Sphinx's riddle. So if you approach a text as if it's a riddle, or you have to you know figure out what meaning it's obscuring, that's part of I think the problem that they're critiquing. No. <laughs> No, actually, I think no. I think there's a layer of that. That's I think that's there's a point there that um, because if if we take what Varun says and it does actually fit into the the part of the previous chapter that stuck with me, where uh, most confused as for ideology, it is the most confused notion because it keeps us from seizing the relationship of the literary machine with the field of production. Uh, because when we start actually doing the psychoanalytic uh, analysis of art, even in Zizek's format of it. Ultimately, what we're doing at that point is we're actually separating the literary machine itself from the field of production by saying that it requires the analysis for it to become part of that symbolic order rather than it having its own pure eminence, uh, which actually Varun, Varun's reading here, I think I can get on board with pretty quick, actually, the concept that Again, if we go back to the idea that they keep pushing, which is every this is a materialist view of the world, deeply materialist, taking the Marxist sort of tradition and, and making it even more materialist than Marx did. Uh, it, art and the eminence of it would be materialist as well. And therefore, the way it affects us uh, doesn't need to be divine through semiotics and through symbols, but instead is directly something we deal with. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, it'll be such a poor interpretation of a painting to go to the painting and uh, uh, and and, uh, and and measure. Oh, look, this has this type of technicality of red. This has this type of technicality of blue. That, that's that's bullshit. Right? It's not an analysis. Let me go back because I actually I wanted I want before you move on. And I know you've got a lot of points bringing up Turner here, I think, and his later works. It points to you being completely spot on on this and is actually helping me understand it better. Because Turner's earlier works, I could absolutely break down, oh, look, uh, to the ones you posted, for example, oh, look, there's a castle, there's a few horses. This is a lovely pastoral scene. Uh, the castle is slightly in disrepair, but it's it's showing blah, blah, blah. And I could talk through the concrete nature of literally what's happening and maybe what it symbolically represents. But as you move into his later works, especially Color of Theory or uh, my favorite, uh, my favorite's Color of uh, Theory of Color. But if you just do a sun setting over a lake, uh, the reasons it has the emotional power it has when it connects with you. Um, I, I like to tell the story of uh, there's a there's an artist and I'm going to I always fucking get his name wrong. He does specifically color things. Uh, the, giant paintings that are blue that transition slightly into red to giant colors. Um, I will get his name later. Rothko, yeah. thank you. Yeah, Mark Rothko. Yeah, I've seen uh, some of his work. It's really great. It's, uh, I saw it in books, and I had people analyze it for me. I grew up in Denver. We didn't have Rothko sitting around. 
when I finally got to go to Chicago when I was young and I got to go to a museum and see it for the first time, I almost cried. It's the weirdest thing to explain. Now, I can't explain that. And there's almost no way that I think anyone can explain the sheer impact that painting had on me uh, and why it had that 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 impact. To me, I would analyze it and just say, oh, it's because of the size. It's because you could see literally every stroke in the entire thing and the passion that went into the simplest of strokes. It's amazing. But uh, the the desire to break it down is something that uh, and and define it and then turn it as they would say uh, almost in that previous chapter uh, the the desire for us to analyze it pull it out like by by ideology ultimately turn it into signifiers and then have the signifiers be the thing that is the production rather than just allowing the painting itself to be the the painting machine or the literary machine or that thing that produces its own flows direct. And I think I can, I can get on board with that reading very quickly. Right. I, I just, I just like to say that uh, for me, the equivalent of, uh, you know, Turner's later paintings in literature is Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. And, uh, and so there you can see the complete breakdown of the, of the, uh, the form of the novel taking place. And um, and and then there's this kind of interesting uh, anecdote about his uh, his practice, uh, which was that, um, you know, he would just go through it and break the word, you know, and, and take, take things that make sense and 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 make puns out of them and so forth. So and so, you know, rather than writing continuously this uh, stream of consciousness of dream. You know, it, it, he had this practice of also just going in and taking something that makes sense and, you know, uh, m making a pun out of it or whatever. Uh, anyway, I just think it's an excellent example. Yeah, I, I, I think the Finnegan's Wake's a perfect example for this because that, that's, uh, I mean, Finnegan's Wake's doing a deterritorialization of the English language. And I mean, not just the English language, but all language. You know, it's, it's a, it's he's he's it's a decoded flow to a certain degree, right? It's that avant-garde. But uh, but what, one thing that you know a lot of people don't appreciate about Finnegan's Wake is that it, it it's a commentary on philology because philology had was this whole practice of going back and finding the the roots of words in uh, old Indo-European languages and figuring out the tree of Indo-European -Euro languages. And Joyce, in writing Finnegan's Wake, put all of those roots into Finnegan's Wake. And so a lot of the things that don't seem to make sense in uh, Finnegan's Wake are, are these Indo-European Indo roots from different languages. Right. Well, when, I mean, I, when, I, when I read in Finnegan's Wake the first time, um, and maybe only time, I've read parts of it since, uh, I, I, was, I had a friend who was... Uh, literary phd that kind of person and i remember asking him about what you know i couldn't find certain words and what they meant i was trying to define it and he kind of chuckled and said that's the point and i think he was being a dick at the time but that sort of makes sense yes that kind of person like you jack literary yeah. people yeah that's that's what i was and that's why it's a decoded flow and that's why you hate it so much Brooks. but i mean that's also you see that in burroughs too i i liked it it was just it's i didn't get it at the time because right. it was, i mean it's a weird it's a weird book to read yeah but, i mean 
But I just want to say that, you know, in logic of sense, uh, you know, that's one of the references in logic and sense. And, and you can see Finnegan's Wake as a text, as a surface in which sense and nonsense are constantly interpenetrating with each other and, and creating this kind of iridescence on the surface of the, uh, of the text. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I want to go back a little bit to Brooke's question about, or not you, Brooke, but the other Brooke, about, about uh, uh, Zizek and schizoanalysis. I mean, Buchanan, what he's doing in that example, I think, I've not read the entire book. I think I've read parts of it. I read it a while back. But I mean, what he's doing in that book is essentially he's, he's trying to, I think that reference to Zizek's analysis of Jaws, if I'm not mistaken, was a reference to uh, the phallus, how the phallus of the, the mythic object of the phallus infused uh, trans, uh, transcendence and creates, uh, you know, it, it, it works similar in the sense that the body without organs gets gets misused in a paralogism when it when it creates a, uh, exclusive disjunctions rather than inclusive disjunctions. And I mean, that's that's the role of the phallus. So I think I don't the thing about Zizek, though, in, in terms of what he's doing with films is extremely different to what what a schizoanalysis of films looks like. Right. Because schizoanalysis, you know, I think one easy way to sum it up is that old feminist slogan. Right. The personal is always political. And it's not the best way to sum it up. It's probably, it's probably horrible, but like one sentence, that's what I would give you. So, I mean, if, if, if you want to look at schizoanalysis, I think Buchanan actually has another book, which is all about schizoanalysis in film that Kent actually gave a citation for. So I'll try and link that. Yes, I, I would just uh, step in just really quick. Uh, the the schizoanalysis deals a lot more with how the, and I, I, I speak in software terms, sorry, how the end user deals with the film. And it's about that relationship rather than a reading almost textual of the film itself. Uh, it's It's much more important as to that sort of the perception of how things are done when we talk about film. And then Cinema 1 and 2 get deeply into this. But, uh, and it's also, it's important to me because it's also been how I've done my sort of analysis of video games and interactive, but playing inside of that space of what that end user perceives versus what may be the direct textual reading, which is, I think, more standard and much more in line with the psychoanalytic view of how film or literature and things work, which is placing things into signs and symbols and defining the overall meaning through the simplistic way those interact. Yeah, I'll try and link it. So I I just like to make an analogy here, which is, uh, you know, Finnegan's Wake's deconstruction of the novel is similar to what uh, Deleuze and Guattari are doing in Anti-Oedipus in in taking the schizophrenic as the limit of the, uh, you know, the development through the, uh, you know, the the savage and the despotic uh, sovereign and capital. And in that diagram that's toward the back, they, they're saying that this is, this is the limit. The schizophrenic uh, model is the limit, which then in retrospect informs our understanding of these previous models, um, you know, of, uh, in Western civilization. Yeah, I mean, I think that I get the schizo being the limit is the perfect example, right? So you'll see the body without organs is the limit. It's the sense that, you know, you're going to that spot where, it, you know, meaning stops making sense. Exactly. And, and, and I just like to draw a comparison between these different books of Deleuze. So, so the difference in repetition talks about the faculties of Kant in Critique of Pure Reason as interpreted by Heidegger. And so, and so, but, but 
But then uh, uh, logic of sense talks about if 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 the unconscious ha- was this surface, what would be happening on this black hole, this event horizon surface of the unconscious? And then anti-Oedipus is 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 kind of going into the unconscious and saying, what are the syntheses that are within the unconscious itself? And so there's a kind of interesting transition between difference and repetition, logic of sense, and this book, Anti-Oedipus. Right. I think we need to be careful, though. I don't know how much I agree with the idea that it's Heidegger's reading of, of Kant's categories. I think it's more to Maimon's reading of Kant and how Maimon and, and how Kant uh, reads Maimon and then how Kant understands the third critique and then how that relates to uh, the problem of Genesis that Deleuze is posing in difference and repetition. Yeah, but I mean, the, the thing is that we're saying basically the same thing because, because uh, Heidegger had a reading of Kant's uh, faculties uh, in order to kind of relate it to Dasein, and that's the, that's the point from which he sets off, but Deleuze interprets that through Maimond in order to get a different, a different take on it. Yeah, but I think it's a whole discussion for another time, so I think we should move on now. I would agree. Who would like to read the next uh, little paragraph? Okay, I guess I will. That's excellent. Um, I believe we left off on uh, It Is Correct. Yes. Excellent. It is correct to measure established literature against an Oedipal psychoanalysis, for this literature deploys a form of superego proper to it, even more noxious than the non-written superego. Oedipus is in fact literary before being psychoanalytic. There will always be a Breton against Artaud. Artaud. Artaud, whatever. I'm never I'm gonna anglicize everything I write, right? That's the way it works. No, that's right. Artaud. Artaud. Uh, a Goth against Lenz, a Schuller against Holderlin. Don't care if I pronounced any of those wrong, sorry. In order to superegoize literature and tell us, careful, go no further. No errors for lack of tact. Werther, yes. Lenz, no. The Oedipal form of literature is its commodity form. We are free to think that there is finally even less dishonesty in psychoanalysis than in established literature. Since the neurotic, pure and simple, produces a solitary work, irresponsible, illegible, and non-marketable, which on the contrary must pay not only to be read, but to be translated and reduced. He makes at least an economic error, an error intact, and does not spread his values. Artaud puts it well. All writing is so much pig shit. That is to say, any literature that takes itself as an end or sets ends for itself, instead of being a process that plows through the that plows the crap of being and its language, transports the weak, the aphasiacs, the illiterate, at least spare us sublimation. Every writer is a sellout. The only literature is that which places an explosive device in its package, fabricating a counterfeit currency, causing the superego and its form of expression to explode, as well as the market value of its form of content. Right. I, I think Artaud famously had a falling out with uh, André Breton, who was like that whole surrealist guy. Yes. Yes. Um, this but I like, I like the idea the Oedipal form of literature is its commodity form. Um, I like that. It's interesting. But you were, you were saying, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that every once in a while I'm reading something Duluth says, and it's just like, it 
makes me think about like creative projects that I'm interested in doing. And it makes me think about creativity in a different way. And I was going to commend this paragraph for helping me to think about creativity, less about being like, there's something I want to say and more about, well, there's just this process that I want to go through. Oh yeah. <laughs> Deleuze and Guattari. Right. Let's be fair. Everyone leaves Guattari out. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a quote also. As I've been getting more into Quadri, I mean, he has, he has a quote that, that Deleuze gave, and I think it's the introduction to psychoanalysis and transversality. Deleuze admits that Quadri went further than he did. Hmm. Yeah, and I quite like Quadri, and I, I don't know why I left him out there. I, I apologize. Uh, Chaosophy is probably one of my favorite books that either of them has. Uh, the collection of essays is, is extraordinary. But I, I do want to just uh, reread a couple of little parts of this. Um, uh, the neurotic, pure and simple, produces a solitary work, irresponsible, illegible, and non-marketable, which, on the contrary, must pay not only to be read, but to be translated and reduced. Uh, sort of uh, talking about sort of the opposing of how one might deal with the commodity of literature and how uh, instead the opposing thing may be happening where you're actually paid to read it. I don't know. It strikes me as a, there's a, there's a form of uh, writing and literature that exists in China, uh, Tencent sort of uh, massive company there uh, pioneered it. And I put that word in just the biggest quotes. Um, every day, uh, a writer will write a paragraph or a chapter and people will uh, pay him for it a dime. I think it's a, a pennies, pennies per chap per page per chapter. And they actually adjust what they're writing over time based on what the people are paying them. So it's like a hyper commodification of literature. And it is some of the books it makes are genuinely the most horrific pablum you've ever read in your life. Almost a Timoneric level parody of writing just made me think of that uh, for some reason. So I wonder, why does he say every writer is a sellout? Uh, uh, <laughs> no, I, I was confused. I was making confused noises. Please I have, one <laughs> I, have, I have one interpretation, but I'd actually like to hear what other people say before I complain. <laughs> Well, for me, the the nature of uh, sort of engaging in the, the writing act uh, means by putting pen and paper, you're actually taking part in the symbolic order because you have to. You have to write in a way that is not as they write uh, the, the thing they're making the comment right before, the neurotic, pure and simple, producing solitary work, irresponsible, legible, non-marketable. That can't actually be what a writer does. That a writer's job is literally the opposite of it, therefore they're a sellout. They're taking part in the Oedipal symbolic order by writing and, and doing their thing. That's how I, how I read that. Uh, Rick. Jack of hearts here. Um, yeah, I think one of the interesting ways you can approach this paragraph is to consider it from the standpoint of what they're saying in terms of the commodity form. So, right. Like you can take that back to, um, Das Capital, Chapter One, um, Section One, right? So, at that at that point, literature as commodity, we're talking about the book as an exchange value, and therefore representing so much labor value, which in turn has to be exchanged for so much labor value in a different commodity. Uh, which is to say that 
we're basically talking about literature in terms of what you can give up in terms of labor in order to arrive at uh, some kind of meaning. And where I'm going with this is to say that uh, if you take the commodity form into the relationship with money, right, uh, we could go a little bit further and say we're, we're talking about something in terms of associus and transcription, which is to say, like, uh, at that point, the literary machine is uh, about is in direct relationship with the socius. And if if we're going to take that in the critique of Oedipus here in the Oedipal form, that means effectively the task of reading, the task of analyzing and all that goes through the medium, um, not only of capital, but of capital in relationship to the Oedipal, which is in and of itself a tremendous irony given that uh, the Oedipal uh, Oedipus Rets, right? We're talking Sophocles, Greek tragedy. Uh, we're talking about uh, a piece of literature that psychoanalysis, particularly Freudian psychoanalysis, uses to understand uh, people and in that sense can also use to understand other texts, ironically. So right. if you knock that out, um, if every, every writer is a sellout, they are a sellout insofar as they're going to have to participate in this sort of neurotic element. Whereas to say, like, not only do they have to sell their book and at some level fit into uh, not just not quite established form, but established form through its connection with what is acceptable, if you want to call it ideological, but what is going to sell and encourage people to trade their labor value for this exchange value. Um, and therefore read, well, buy the book, if not, uh, whether or not they read it is irrelevant. For example, I don't think many people read the Dan Brown paperbacks they buy. Uh, I certainly don't, haven't read the one I was given. Well, I, well, so, and I, I think for me, it's their, their use of two words here in just two sentences. On the one side, they say, every writer is a sellout, but then they go on to talk about literature. And literature, they have almost a deferential tone when they talk about the specific sort of medium. And so when they say every writer is a sellout, they're saying literally everyone starts from that point. You are by taking part in this deter. Uh, you are taking part in this territorialization inside of the Oedipal commodification of experience down to a written form. However, if you want to make literature, and you want to be like basically to undo this sort of sellout shittiness. Uh, put a bomb in there, fake it, uh, put something inside of it that people finish and they read and they go, oh, fuck, and it changes them because you've created, as they put, a counterfeit currency causing the superego and its form of expression to explode, as well as the market value of its form of content. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to read this sentence as commentary on anti-Oedipus anti itself and to try to think of what is it that explodes? What is it that is the uh, fabricated counterfeit currency? And, uh, you know, what is that in anti-Oedipus? What, what tricks have they played on us in anti-Oedipus? Uh, just to respond uh, to Brooks, I, I think the key to understanding what they're talking about is when they say at least spare a sublimation and the references to super-egoizing. So there's this way in which, which right, uh, once you move into the neurotic and psychotic, you begin to develop a relationship with the superego. 
And that's important because the superego is going to determine how you participate in society and abide by certain social rules, right? So we're talking second synthesis, uh, laws versus commandments, the paralogism versus the syllogism here, uh, which is to say, if writers are sellouts, it's in this process of sublimation, uh, which is to say, it's like you see this in movies all the time where somebody wants to be an author to live this, you know, uh, authentic life and to make a living through their work. And, you know, it's just they, they think that by being a writer, they're going to engage in the system without engaging in it. Right. They're going to somehow get out of it by getting into it. And that's just simply not the case. They're going to go through the machine and the, the social production and the social um, act of sublimation and uh, repression that comes with it, right? So I, I would say, I think we want to be careful because when it comes to writing literature in that or making art in that, I think there's a level too where it's not being... Uh, a writer is very difficult to get into, but I think it comes with not participating in the super egoizing and therefore the sublimation, which Deleuze and Guattari go so far as to say, at least spare us the sublimation. Right. I mean, I, I think all of this can be actually be reduced to, there is a reduced to what, uh, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's coded in a certain way, right? Every time you, you put a, a form of communication onto a book, it's coded into one familiar similarity. It's, co it's coded into one sort of symbolic order, and it's coded in one specific way on the socius. So um, I, 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 I guess I, I, I agree with Brooks's point and all you guys' points, right, that it's, it, it's, it's specifically coded in such a way that it's, it's comprehensible rather than a decoded flow every time you put something on paper. Yes, and... Again, that's why it's people are co-opted, right? The author can be co-opted, whether it's through interpretation or through direct participation in social repression. Um, Ezra Pound being a very easy example of that um, in both an ironic and non-ironic sense. But to give an example too, like, yeah, there's bombs in that, but you could also, you know, Umberto Eco in, in Foucault's Pendulum has this great line where he goes to... Um, he goes to a friend's cottage, and in the cottage, there's a desk, and in the back of the desk, I'm sorry, in the drawers at the very back are poems, never meant to be published by, an, uh, by a man who, who always uh, degraded himself as an author, which is why he got into the publishing business, ironically. Uh, right, that's Emily Dickinson writing poems, stuffing them in the back of a drawer, and not publishing them. Right. With that, so we want to move on then to the next paragraph. Spent a while on this paragraph. Oh, I was muted. So sorry. Yes, I was trying to say the same thing, Barun. Um, let's move on. Would anyone like to read the next paragraph? Yeah, uh, sure. I can go ahead. Go for it. <coughs> but some reply. Artaud does not belong to the realm of literature. He is outside. It is because he is schizophrenic. Others retort, he is not schizophrenic since he belongs to literature, and the most important literature at that, the textual. Both groups at least 
both groups hold at least one thing in common. They subscribe to the same puerile and reactionary conception of schizophrenia and the same marketable neurotic conception of literature. A shrewd critic writes, one need understand nothing of the concept of signifier in order to declare absolutely that Arthur's language is that of a schizophrenic. The psychotic produces an involuntary discourse, fettered, subjugated. Therefore, in all respects, the contrary of textual writing. But what, what is the enormous textual archaism? The two aspects, the, the, the signifier that subjugates literature to the mark of castration and sanctifies the two aspects of its edible form. And who told the shrewd critic that no, the discourse of the psychotic was involuntary, fettered, and subjugated? Not that it is merely the opposite. Thank God. But these very oppositions are singularly lacking in reverse. Artaud makes a sh shambles of psychiatry precisely because he is schizophrenic and not because he is not. Artaud is the fulfillment of literature because uh, it has been a big long since he broke down and walled the signifier. Artaud is the schizo. From the depths of his suffering and his glory, he, was the, he has the right to denounce what society makes of the psychotic in the process of decoding the flows of desire. Van Gogh, the man suicided by society. But also what it makes of literature, when it opposes literature to psychosis in the names of the neurotic or perverse recording. Lewis Carroll or the coward of Bellatrix. Bellatrix. Belles, Let's Harris. Anyways, yeah, I think Lewis Carroll. They might be referring directly back to Logic of Sense, but anyways. I think uh, so. They say that Arto makes samples of psychiatry precisely because he is schizophrenic and not because he is not. You know, I think it's also again like what I spoke about earlier about you know their understanding of the schizophrenic model as being non. -rep you can't understand the schizophrenic, like you can't understand Judge Schraber for them as being a representation of an idealist. That's not really what they're talking about. Because you know, you know, I think all the other critique, like some of the critiques that came out of anti Oedipus in the eighties and stuff, like Gilles Chatelet's like to think and live like pigs. I mean, so they were like they didn't really. You know, this meme. This book was a bestseller in France, and it became almost a meme book, right? But then the responses were all like, "Oh, so the new the new revolutionary is just the schizophrenic, right?" But it's 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 not like that for them, right? It's it, they're trying to directly relate it back to eminence. Right. That's how I read this too. And when they talk about Artaud specifically here, and they go over and over, and it's we've done, and I highly encourage anyone listening to this. Uh, we did a couple of talks on Artaud. And uh, I keep saying our toad. God damn it. Um, but uh, we, we did a couple of talks on him and his uh, writings that are very, very pertinent to this. Uh, it's back in our SoundCloud and on our on our podcast. Worth worth listening to um, because his his works themselves are fairly incomprehensible directly. They they don't um, like a couple of the other books we were talking about or how some of the things they reference here. They aren't coming from a place where they are playing directly with what I would call our normal symbolic order. Would that be fair, Varun? Uh, if everyone that they, he comes from a very different direction of everything. Yeah, I just gave an example of uh, leaving the symbolic order in the chat. <laughs> yes, that's fair. And so, but but by starting there and by playing with that, and Arto definitely did. Uh, they call him the fulfillment of literature because, and I, I, you could almost maybe say that he wasn't so much a writer, so he never really sold out. Um, right. I mean, but that's the idea that it's a, you know, the schizophrenia, schizophrenia is the limit. 
it's not so much that it's uh, it's, it's the actual uh, it's, it's it's the limit in the sense that they're they're going beyond it, right? I think there's a great line in uh, a thousand plateaus that I keep like to repeating, especially in the chapter in the body without organs. They say that you know our psychoanalysis tells us stop. We've we 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 have haven't found ourselves yet. Uh, schizoanalysis says no, we must go on. We must find our body without organs, and the body without organs is the limit that you're always chasing. Yep. Excellent. Uh, anyone have any final points before we move on to the just a couple more uh, little paragraphs to go? All right, uh, I'll go ahead and dive in. Uh, very few accomplish what Lang calls the breakthrough of his of this schizophrenic wall or limit. Quite ordinary people, nevertheless. But the majority draw near the wall and back away horrified. Better to fall back under the law of the signifier, marked by castration, triangulated in Oedipus. So they displace the limit. They make it pass into the interior of the social formation. Between the social production and reproduction that they invest, and the familial reproduction that they fall back on, to which they apply all the investments. They make the limit pass into the interior of the domain thus described by Oedipus, between the two poles of Oedipus. They never stop involuting and evolving between these two poles. Oedipus as the last rock, and castration as the cavern. The ultimate territoriality, although reduced to the analyst's couch, rather than the decloded flows of desire that flee, slip away, and take us where? Such is neurosis, the displacement of the limit, in order to create a little colonial world of one's own. But others want virgin land, but others want virgin lands, more truly exotic. Families more artificial, societies more secret, that they design and institute along the length of the wall in the locales of perversion. Still others, sickened by the utensility of Oedipus, but also by the shoddiness and asceticism of perversions, reach the wall and rebound against it, sometimes with an extreme violence. Then they become immobile. Silent, they retreat to the body without organs. Still a territoriality, but this time totally desert-like, where all desiring production is arrested, or it becomes rigid, feigning stoppage, psychosis. That's such a fucking good paragraph. Why do I think of Marvel movies? I feel like I feel like it's because you've been subjugated. <laughs> well, it just feels like. They're talking about as as people approach the wall, how they react to it and what they return to feels so so particular here, and how people deal with. Right. I mean, I think it goes back to that idea that people get stuck in ruts, right? And it, it, it I think also their conservatism sort of shows you that not every, you know, not everyone passes through this limit. It's it's only a certain few that really reach that point of the limit. I, I'd like to I'd like to mention uh, uh, Melville. He he wrote this uh, he wrote this book called Marty, which is a kind of failed novel. Um, and uh, and in in this in this book, he tries to take the position of the uh, uh, the islander and uh and see them as philosophers and then what would they have what would their philosophy have been like and what would their position toward the western worldview been like and um and so it's it's a very interesting kind of meta novel uh that that is about this kind of thing of coming up to the wall 
and trying to traverse it. And the fact that it's like a failed novel kind of uh, is it, it makes it even more interesting in some way. So I wanted to respond to um, uh, uh, the, the question of displacing the limit. So if you recall, in the previous section, uh, Deleuze and Guadari make the point that Kerouac, uh, Miller, and all these other authors go very far, but at the last, you know, as they're moving, they have the problem of being, uh, if you want to uh, re-territorialize would probably be the proper term, but they come right back into the same, um, what we could, what we were tempted to call ideology. They come right back into the, uh, the elements of uh, sort of social uh, requirements, if, if we want to use that, as opposed to Artaud, who is the fulfillment, which um, is, is the, right, so Artaud is doing what they couldn't do, um, which I think is not just the, the, the glossolia and all that, where it's tempting to say like, oh, because he's incomprehensible. I think it's not that he's incomprehensible. I think it's that when you read a text, like, uh, like to have done with the judgment of God, you you find it extremely difficult to just lay on uh, the meaning of the text. So, like when I first read Karl uh, Marx, my my initial thing was, oh look, here's alienation, and here it is again. And I tri- kept trying to force this interpretation from what I had heard about Marx onto the text. Uh, by the time I went back to reread it, uh, I had grown up past that. But you can't do that to Artaud's work because he's not working or engaging with that level of um, what could easily be called the meta-narrative. Uh, so when we're talking about dis- displacing the limit in that, the limit, I would say, is where Freud Freud would probably look at it in terms of sublimation, the superego, and say the way we fit into all this. But I think it's what Artaud does in the sense that he's able to engage the social without being subsumed by it, uh, without being a part of the consumption, but instead um, moving through it by with actually a startling amount of ease in some ways. Right. I mean, I mean, there's a sort of a point where you know people don't go far enough in this case. Uh, I think uh, there's an interesting conversation to have about this. I think Taylor Adkins and Joseph Wiseman did a good podcast on like some of this. Uh, I forgot the exact episode. That episode where they had that what's his name that that hack that that village idiot the the bullshitter uh, Justin Murphy. Right. They, they talk about this pretty much in that episode. <laughs> should have uh, Taylor come back and talk actually through this with us because I think it'd be worthwhile. Um, uh, let's hit him up and see if he'll join tomorrow, actually. Um, I'm going to go ahead and continue reading, though, so we can keep getting through this. Uh, apparently, yes, we know you don't like Justin Murphy. Uh, These catatonic bodies have fallen into the river like lead weights, immense transfixed hippopotamuses who will not come back up to the surface. They have entrusted all their forces to primal repression in order to escape the system of social and psychic repression that fabricates neurotics. But a more naked repression befalls them that declares them identical with the hospital schizo, the great autistic one, the clinical entity that lacks Oedipus. 
why the same word schizo to designate both the process insofar as it goes beyond the limit and the result of the process insofar as it runs up against the limit and pounds endlessly away there? Why the same word to designate both the eventual breakdown and the possible breakdown and all the transitions and the intrications of the two extremes? In point of fact, of the three preceding adventures, the adventure of psychosis is the most intimately related to the process. In the sense of Jasper's demonstration, when he shows that the, the demonic, ordinarily repressed, erupts by means of such a state, or gives rise to such states, which endlessly run the risk of making it topple into breakdown and disintegration. So how I read this paragraph, and I was while well, you guys were talking, I read it twice, and I'm probably going to get a decent chunk of this uh, completely wrong, but it feels as though they aren't talking about the schizo being only that one, which you know, sort of uh, we've talked about so far as being almost having emancipatory powers, having a freedom, being able to skin a, scam across all kinds of different things, but instead that... Uh, the schizo is wherever the Oedipal Triangle breaks down, and it breaks down in a couple ways. And through all of those places, it's not so much breaking down, but the breakthrough is possible, even in those that perhaps refuse and fall back on the body without organs. It feels as though that's what they're talking about. If anyone has another view of that feel free it just feels like they just want to make sure that we are not simply throwing out the catatonic bodies that have fallen into the river like lead weights as though they are uh you know debris left behind but instead that they also have the potentiality inside of them since it is also where breakdown and disintegration happen is my mic working Okay. Apparently it's working. Fuck you, Park Bench. Um, I just would love if anyone could push back. Let's let's talk about this in the review tomorrow because uh, reading this, it's hitting me in a different way, and I think it's because we're one of the things we've harped on quite a bit is. Uh, talking about the fascists desiring their own repression, talking about where the fascist comes in, how they come in, how this happens. It feels I, like this paragraph is very much talking about it's not that the schizo is not just purely this one emancipatory bright figure, but that everyone who has broken down actually has that potentiality in them. Well, fair, fair. Uh, careful how we use fascism. Uh, the. Um, I was more I'm more trying to talk about the the repressed uh masses the how to put it uh, lumpen proletariat uh maybe the another better word right I think the best word is spinozism say say again spinoza yeah, that's the perfect way to describe it oh yes Yes, actually, that and so let's make sure we discuss this tomorrow because I think it, it feels like an important point. I'm not going to be able to fully vocalize because we are passing uh, two hours pretty solid here. So let's uh, read the last paragraph and then have uh, last notes and get through that um, because this has been a 
fantastic reading. Again, thank all of you for joining, but I want to definitely get through it. Um, we no longer know if it is the process that must truly be called madness, the sickness being only disguise or caricature, or if the sickness is our only madness and the process our only cure. But in any case, the intimate nature of the relationship appears directly in inverse ratio. The more the process of production is let off course, brutally interrupted, the more the schizo as entity arises as a specific product. That is why, on the other hand, we were unable to establish any direct relationship between neurosis and psychosis. The relationships of neurosis, psychosis, and also perversion depend on the situation of each one with regard to the process and on the manner in which each one represents a mode of interruption of the process, a residual bit of ground to which one still clings so as not to be carried off by the deterritorialized flows of desire. Neurotic territoriality of Oedipus, perverse territorialities of the artifice, psychotic territoriality of the body without organs. Sometimes the process is caught in the trap and made to turn about within the triangle. Sometimes it takes itself as an end in itself. Other times it continues on in the void and substitutes a horrible exasperation for its fulfillment. Each of these forms has schizophrenia as a foundation. Schizophrenia as a process is the only universal. Schizophrenia is at once the wall, the breaking through the wall, and the failures of this breakthrough. How does one get through the wall? For it is useless to hit hard. It has to be undermined and penetrated with a file, slowly with patience as I see it. What is at stake is not merely art or literature, for either is artistic machine. The analytical machine and the revolutionary machine will remain in extrinsic relationships that make them function in the deadening framework of the system of social and psychic repression. Or they will become the parts and cogs of one another in the flow that feeds one and the same desiring machine. So many local fires patiently kindled for a generalized explosion. The skiz and not the signifier. It's a hell of a chapter and a great one to lead off. Thank all of you for joining. Any last thoughts before we push off into uh, wherever we happen to be going the rest of the day? For me, it's work. But I'll take that as a no. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, once again, uh, this and our last week's talk, I will be getting up at some point in the next couple days on SoundCloud. I've been a little slammed. Apologies. Uh, and in the next week, be watching for changes on the server. We're hoping to do really cool stuff uh, and hoping to make things a little bit easier for everyone. So, uh, again, thank all of you for coming. And uh, as always, take care of yourselves and be safe. Uh, we look forward to seeing you tomorrow for our review of all of it.